Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 30, Final Fantasy VII, episode 18. Today, a special um, episode of SideQuest where we talk about um, fantasy, video games, and addiction. And joined not only by my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance, but also my uh, esteemed colleague, Dr. Matthew uh, Roos from the Consilience Conversations. Uh, welcome, Dr. Roos. Welcome, Mr. Wesley Chance, for this special episode. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thank you. Good to be here, as always. And so, well, Matt, we've been talking about this video game, Final Fantasy VII, from 1997 that was, so, that was pivotal, we think, for sort of older millennials um, getting into their 30s now uh, for this generation. And um, we, we've been, uh, just like we've been talking about Harry Potter and just like you and I have sort of been talking about um, the connections between neuroscience and literature, um, this, this game seems to have had a major, well, it, what we're talking about in this game is just the major influence it has had on the psyche of people who are alive today. And so since we've been talking a lot about that, we, we thought we might talk a little bit about some of the dark sides of video games. So obviously some of the positives are eye-hand coordination, teamwork, working towards a goal, um, all sorts of things. But also we want to talk a little bit about addiction today. And since you're sort of, um, you're the neuroscientist that we know, uh, and, uh, we thought we might mine you for some information on this and see what sorts of connections we can make in about 45, 50 minutes and, um, you know, try and put something good out there. Yeah, happy to do what I can. I don't know how deeply we can mine since, it's, uh, <laughs> as I've always said on the, on the uh, consilience uh, conversations, conversations, that's not my, uh, this is not my sort of area of expertise, but um, happy to share some information with your listeners. All right. Well, well, so do you guys think we should start with, I've just shared for the YouTube listeners the spreadsheet for this time. So we, were, we, we have written out here core components of addiction, a couple articles, uh, this thing called internet use disorder, which we could explain, um, uh, whether video game playing can, strictly speaking, be called an addiction and why is that an important question? Um, and is there some concept creep going on here? Seems to be uh, the bit. Uh, also, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about this crazy, uh, this crazy condition out east called Hikikomori, where the criteria for it, when I was reading the criteria, they're just incredible. It's something like six months without leaving one's home completely. Is uh, I think there have been uh, situations where uh, you know, people have died, uh, and I guess <laughs> that's a serious hallmark of that, uh, that condition. That's, yeah, that's insane. And so actually, I don't know, just that, that kind of catches my attention immediately. Wes, you, uh, how about, would you be interested in us starting Hikiko Mori uh, or, or going uh, in a different direction? No, that sounds good, because the question I was kind of thinking about here and uh, welcome again, Matt, to the show. Um, we sort of just free associate a lot, so try to bear with me here. The question I was kind of thinking about was like, what makes video games and um, playing them a lot different from you know playing other kinds of games too much? Mm. Um, it seems like to me, you know, gambling is a pretty clear area where we can talk about that being an addiction because it has such negative consequences that impact you kind of right away. Um, or, you know, if you're really lucky, super positive consequences over yeah. and over, I guess, but, It'll but you know, video game, well, with the, with the video game though, it's like, yeah, if you're sort of like in your house all the time and not out and about, I guess I can start to see how that is quite different from like, you know, playing sports too much or, you know, playing hopscotch too much or something like that. What do you think about that? Well, let me just add to, uh, as you well know, I'm sure there's, um, you know, of course, Gambling disorders have been around for a long time and known as such. Of course, now we have lots of online gambling options available. Of course, in the U.S., it's uh, restricted to various degrees, and there are some ways to get around that. So um, sort of your analogy of or your statement about people sort of shutting themselves away in the house, uh, just playing and playing and playing. Well, the same thing, I, I suppose, could be said for, um, you know, various forms of gambling. But I think you hit on something right away there that is important to point out, which is that, um, you know, we can talk about a little bit more about uh, some of the data or some of the findings, but, you know, gambling is something that um, has made, been compared to um, addiction. And I'm going to use that term loosely since it's, of course, uh, as we'll discuss, can be defined in a variety of ways and hasn't necessarily been 
officially defined as a you know video game addiction hasn't actually been defined as an addiction um but nonetheless there's some relationships there from the sort of neuroscience side uh between gambling and um sort of i guess again addiction, addiction such as it is to video games i i do want to talk about that and how that might also relate to the five factor uh model as well but i um I'm also interested in understanding, because that is such an interesting distinction that I didn't make that you two did, about why it is that playing this game specifically in an isolated way at home would have such a deleterious effect on your health, potentially. As can, I, let, a game. Let me, can I interject something? Yeah, or just yeah, throw don't. a question here, because I, you know, I don't know a lot about uh, this specific game. Um, you know, I'm from, uh, we'll say half a generation <laughs> before you, Alex. Um, but I certainly played, you know, I grew up with computers and they were, you know, sort of nude and, and, and available to uh, the middle income household. And so, of course, I had video games and I was, you know, I nerded out like some of the best today and played role playing games. But they I saw a progression from solely text based games like the, those who might be listening might know the, the uh, Infocom company. They, they were sort of the sort of originators, of a lot of these text based games where you know, a description of a scene or a room is read, is put on the screen, you read it, and then you, in sort of somewhat normal language, type out your response and what you want to do. And then the next level was finally you see some better graphics, but they are miserable by today's standards. Um, and then they progress more and more towards sort of the deep immersion role-playing games or first-person shooter games and things like that that we see today. Um, so I'm sort of not really where I'm sure where I'm going with that other than I think, you know, even in those days, uh, I think I'm sure there were people that could get addicted to those sort of more simplistic games. Uh, but what I really wanted to, to point out or ask you about is the degree to which, you know, sometimes it's claimed that uh, now that the games have gone online and you're playing with a group of other people, uh, sure, you may be locked away in your room or, you know, away from other people, but you are in some sense, actively engage with other people just in a virtual world. Okay, so that's my question. Have some conversation during that that you can type into or actually verbally speak, but um, maybe you can comment on that and how you think that might relate to you know, our conversation today. Yeah, so there are just two parts of that that I think we can nail down if we, if we look at them specifically. Because A, I think we need to look at the addiction, the aspect of addiction, which is negative impact. Because how you portray it there seems fine, right? If you're normally adapted to the world and this is just one of your habits and you communicate via in the most appropriate way, you're not addicted, you're playing the game appropriately, that's fine. But what I think is operant here and maybe getting at the heart of Wes's question is, are you utilizing the social, uh, the social circuitry you have, like the extroversion circuitry you have and getting hits for it without getting the actual social benefits or social effects of being around people? right? So you don't have like people's looks, moderating, how you sort of act, behave, what you say, how you present yourself, how you look. You're sort of isolated without any feedback from people about your actual physical embodiment. They're, you're only getting uh, feedback about sort of your behavior within this digital world where uh, your character is not experiencing the same entropy as you are. As yeah, a yeah. Well, right. certainly, actually, yeah. I, you, you can't argue with that. And I think it's pretty clear and it doesn't take a psychologist or a neuroscientist to see sort of behavioral problems that might arise or to imagine that some behavioral issues might arise from that. One thing I read, and maybe you did, both of you guys may have read this as well, but, you know, that Japanese term, uh, Kiko Komori, uh, about a person who shuts himself up in a room is sort of, a, I suppose, a loose translation. Uh, but I was reading a little bit further about these conditions that are, I guess, uh, you know, maybe it's a diagnosis uh, in those cultures. Um, you know, they, they, there are people that they try to treat by, they, they become so um, ignorant, not stupid, but just sort of ignorant of social cues and eye gaze and, and looking at someone's face and sort of interpreting what might be going on in that person's mind. They actually have training videos that these people may watch in order to try to uh, relearn if they ever had known at all how to read people's gaze and 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 uh, sort of get an emotional awareness based on their uh, outward nonverbal behavior. So I think what you just described there, Alex, is um, you know this is what I just described as indicative of what might happen if you set your 
if you're playing these games and cut off from sort of real world social cues, you're totally immersed in this game that has a very limited and constrained uh, range of social situations. Well, and that's so interesting too. And then I just want to bounce it back over to you, Wes, just because that, this guy that Wes and I have both listened to, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, often references Jean Piaget, who was constructivist, um, I think Swiss uh, psychologist, though he called himself um, a developmental neuroanatomist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when he, uh, and one thing he talks about is that a lot of human socialization happens between the ages of two and four. And so I'm not sure which part of the brains are developing fastest then, but probably some pretty social ones. And that the kids that are not socialized appropriately by the age of four never catch back up with everyone else. Because it seems like what a human life is, is that humans are progressing at whatever the rate their sort of mental processing allows them to do, maybe their IQ or their G. Um, And that if you fall behind at at a very... uh, a very important or imprinting sort of age, you just never catch up. And just thinking about adolescents here getting addicted to video games or even possibly adults, I wonder to what extent this is a version of that. If you spend this much time using your adaptive capacity to adapt to a virtual world rather than the world at large, to what extent are you losing all that time and ability that you would be producing to deal with the the world at large and that you never get back? And so not only is there a problem once you get caught by this addiction, but there, there, there may be potential, you know, consequences all the way down the line afterwards too, that you may socially always be behind afterwards. I'm potentially. So I'm thinking about this uh, maybe in a weird way, but see what you guys make of this. Um, Like in our time um, when you have some kind of uh, social or, you know, some kind of problem like this, you, you might hole up in your room and play video games all day, right? Um, for people before now who had this kind of thing go on, I'm kind of thinking that it was probably that they would become like monks, you know, or like they would, they would hole up and um, maybe do other sorts of substances, right? Um, whether it's uh, uh, books or opium or something like that, right? But in any case, these are all sorts of like, ways of trying to adapt, I guess, to a situation that one feels very poorly equipped for. Um, that seems to be sort of the, the motivation insofar as there is one that could drive somebody to do this. And, uh, and I wonder, like, in that time, in the medieval ages, the monastery was, um, you know, a very high status place in society, uh, whereas now, uh, People who hole up in their rooms uh, are sort of a, a problem, right? There's something that society needs to sort of try to solve um, or, or deal with or um, bring back into the fold. Um, I, I don't know if that's like too much of a stretch, that, that analogy, um, but just as a kind of, I don't know, experimental uh, approach to this, um, what would a, what would a, a center it would treat this, you know, what, what, what would it look like now? Um, and, and how would it sort of get at those, those deeper issues? If, as you say, like, by the time you're four years old, it's too late. Well, shoot, what do we do? That is so interesting that you make that connection to a monastery, which is also deeply connected with the history of the university, which is another place outside the normal way of things where mm-hmm. people get to consider the nature of things, right? And so they don't have to keep up with the news, but can think of the good news or that which is always substantive, not that which is simply temporal, because it's impossible to keep up. But what happens when, you know, and we do still have places like that too, right? If one becomes addicted to a drug, like one becoming addicted to a video game, like we're suggesting here, you can go to a rehabilitation center, which is outside the normal course of time and activity, right? You're not expected to keep the same hours that you keep in life. You won't be around the same people. You're, there's, it's sort of like a place outside, like a summer camp or something like that. And I would say even summer is sort of the season that is also like that. And also, uh, you know, late winter as well. In fact, the Greeks, the Greeks had a month that had an undefined amount of na- days. It was around 40 where they didn't keep time. And so, yeah. So, yeah, Matt, what do you make of this 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 idea, this. Well, uh, let me, yeah, yeah, let me, uh, you know, let's let, let me add to that or just comment on it. Um, 
you know, I think there's uh, one thing that's in, well, two things. I'll preface it first by saying, uh, you, uh, Wes, you didn't say it explicitly, but I think sort of what can also be inferred by that, uh, th those statements is that, um, you know, the accessibility that we now have that are for certainly younger people have to close themselves off from society by, and, and playing these games is part of the reason we see this addiction. Of course, it wasn't available before. Um, and so whether it was 50 years ago or hundreds of years ago when the, the, the monasteries were sort of more popular, I guess. Um, sure, maybe that would have been one way someone who had these sort of underlying perhaps social uh, challenges that might be one of their solutions. Um, or it's also that the fact, you know, it's also likely that they just outgrew it, you know, because they didn't have as many, they couldn't sort of uh, take the strategy of dodging society as easily as they might be able to today. And so they were forced to interact with society and eventually they, uh, they might've been sort of behind on a developmental curve, but you know, they came about, it happens all the time with children and you know, they're a little bit behind in the reading, but don't worry about it. They'll be fine in another year or so. Um, one thing that came to my mind though, that since you mentioned monasteries is, uh, this is perhaps treading into some dangerous waters, but as we know with the Catholic church and all their challenges with sexual, sexual predators and with some of the clergy and, and, you know, let's preface it by saying, I'm sure most of the, you know, most of the clergy are great, decent human beings and we don't need to be, uh, you know, I don't want to, uh, pigeonhole anybody or stereotype anybody. But uh, it may be that even in modern society or recent modern society, um, the church, whether not necessarily a monastery, but if someone felt awkward um, in various ways socially, they may still go to a, they may be attracted to um, a job or profession where it's, there's sort of limited or constrained social situation. So that could be the church um, or it could be a librarian or, you know, just make up some things where forest ranger, these sort of things where you can sort of uh, isolate yourself. So um, it's possible that people in the past would have taken those routes, but it's also, I think, quite possible that a lot of people sort of outgrew it or never um, had uh, recourse to um, hold themselves up and sort of prevent their development in such a disastrous way. Well, that makes me think so much that that so many of our sort of conditions are a prospect or, or precisely because of how wealthy we are as a people, right? Like a food addiction requires food, plenty of it too, and the economic system necessary to produce the income necessary to buy food easily like we can, and then engorge on it. Sex as well. There needs to be a, a certain limiting of disease and sexually transmitted disease to have a society liberal enough in order to, um, to uh, have the mores we do about sex. That's actually shown, Peterson uh, references uh, a study, which I'd have to look at, uh, which I could find easily, um, that shows that the rate of disease prevalence in the society is like, has a 0.6 correlation with the strictness of their sexual mores. Um, and so there seems to be a direct connection between disease prevalence in a society and strict moral codes, especially when it comes to regulation of the motivational system of, you know, uh, seeking uh, sex. And so I'm just, I'm wondering to what extent, A, our culture, because we're rich, allows us to manifest more of these primary motivational systems so that they can, to some extent, run more rampant in our luxurious and rich culture, but also provide us with more food and information about the presence and the, um, and the nature of these motivational systems and how to regulate them because of just how frequently they manifest themselves in, in illnesses or diseases in our culture. The, the question I have about that is like, what role advertisers and marketers have in promoting this? You know, like 50 years ago, the cigarette companies were extremely skillful at marketing their product to people and it was addictive and they knew it and they made a lot of money at it. And uh, I think that's like a pretty fair analogy, I guess, to what um, now you have like phone, cell phone games or smartphone games or whatever, right? Like little apps that they give you like a little a hit of, uh, of the good stuff when you, when you play them and then you want to play them over and over. And then, you know, pretty soon there's a little ad there in the corner and you sort of notice it like, 
a thousand times before you realize that you really want to buy that thing that that ad is mm -hmm. that keeps flashing up on the screen you know so I, I don't know like this is probably something that um, there have been lots of studies on and they're you know probably studies paid for by the various companies with the stake in what what the studies find but um, you know just what role affluence yes but also the particular kind of affluence that is so driven by uh, marketing and advertising hey did i lose you guys no no we're here we're oh, here sorry yeah <laughs> sorry to you and and your listeners um yeah uh that was reminding me of something oh yeah the um you know, and to take that one step further, the, you know, some of the game producers or manufacturers uh, give you a hit of the good stuff, as Wes said, but they also, they, they recognize that you needed a certain, uh, it, it's tied into that. The complexity of the game increases over time, or it, I should say it adapts to your skill level. So if you're not playing well enough to be rewarded at a frequent enough uh, pace, they, you know, the game difficulty might decrease so that you are rewarded and will continue to want to play. So uh, it's pretty interesting. I think uh, one of those uh, links in the, the, on the YouTube uh, page there that are, we're showing, uh, one of those papers uh, highlights that a little bit where really people who studied psychology uh, have been, you know, cooperated or worked with gaming companies to uh, increase the degree to which, you know, the, the player will want to continue playing. So it's, it's definitely big business and advertisers and just game manufacturers are, are certainly in there and they, they're paying attention to what they, at a minimum, the psychi uh, like the, the psychiatric studies or the psychological studies uh, say about these things. Yeah, and I was, I was less interested, not that I'm not interested, um, in what the ethics of an advertiser are what his responsibility was and more how we could apply these behavioral principles of appropriate interval release of of reward and incentive reward um, uh, with you know the appropriate fixed or variable ratio to education to keep students engaged and to what extent and this is what I thought in relation to advertising now, obviously advertisers do use whatever neuroscience and market research they can get their hands on in order to you know motivate you to buy what they have, sure. But to what extent is education, um, a good education supposed to teach you about the presence of those motivations inside of yourself so that they cannot be used to manipulate you? And to what extent is the purpose of an education to teach you how to wield those tools yourself and order, and also to defend against them, to be able to use your rational intellect, or, you know, your, your conscious thinking ability to to sort of not override those motivations but to understand uh how things are molded around you to affect your perception of them you know i, I would want to respond to that uh comment in a slightly different perhaps indirect way or take it on a, a slight tangent um you know it would seem that we are you know th these kind of addictions again if you will um that we're amenable to these or we can be you know drawn into them but part of it is that um when it comes to a video game addiction um it, what we're addicted to as is not you know it's not a physical thing it's not food it's not sex which is physical in a certain way but it induces uh certain uh you know hormonal uh um transmissions and so that's the sort of what what makes us feel good and therefore that's the reward um but what it it indicates is that you know we we are sentient beings and we sort of sometimes develop our own sense of reward. So like we'll just say accomplishment, and so some, when someone accomplishes something that they set out to do, um, they they feel good about that, and there's a dopamine release, and they are rewarded, and so you know that that now has value. So what the dop dopamine does is it's not the dopamine that makes someone feel good. It's the dopamine is um, when something does feel good that dopamine is released or it represents in a sense neurally a, a value to something. And that value could be an addictive drug, but it could also be um, the sense of accomplishment of doing something that you set out to do. And so where I'm going with this statement is when you talk about education, um, you know, anything you can do early on to find um, something that a child is good at, 
and something hopefully that is uh, has redeeming qualities in society, if you can, you know, work with them to get them to realize that they have that skill and they feel that reward or that accomplishment when they take on that challenge and, and are successful at that, then in some sense, maybe they get addicted to working hard and doing good things uh, that are uh, important for society. So, you know, can we, I think what you, the things that you were talking about there, Alex, is about, about sort of recognizing or understanding their own, their own selves in a way to not be pulled in um, by this kind of addiction is important, but it's probably something that many children will not have really the cognitive skills to deal with until a bit later in life. So, but when we're talking about early, you know, children in the grade school or early grade school, maybe more important to try and find ways to get them to recognize, uh, to feel rewarded internally by their own accomplishments. I like, I like that point a lot. And I, I think it's a really interesting problem, right? Like how much to, to use what we know to sort of stoke and manipulate, if you know, want to put it that way, um, those kind of valorizing uh, feelings um, that, that things count, that they mean something, right? And that you count, you matter. And so you're going to keep doing the good thing that makes you feel that way, right? So mm -hmm. that all sounds, yeah, like really important to um, ingrain and to ingrain the right kinds of habits at the right time in the right way. Right. Um, definitely, I mean, it definitely can be then very, um, very slippery slope where um, that, that same feeling right, takes the place of the thing that is supposed to evoke the feeling, right? The yes. good feeling gets in the way of the good, actually good thing. And so I guess I would say to always, like, to always be guided by something that's so good that um, other sorts of distractions or um, really manipulations wouldn't, uh, wouldn't deviate you from it. That, that seems to be part of the goal here. Uh, I think, uh, and, and uh, I don't remember if, um if we started off mentioning this, but uh, we have talked about sort of these five different uh, personality attributes that uh, seem to be related to perhaps addiction generally, but also video game. But uh, to tie that back there, Wes, uh, you know, one of the things that video game addiction seems to be cor positively correlate correlated with is neuroticism. So, um, but you could imagine any behavior where you might initially think it's a, uh, uh, you know, very respectable and, and redeeming to society. But if the person ends up doing it and because of their sort of, and it's just really feeding into their neuroticism, that is there's, you know, it's the success that they're addicted to and it's sort of self-aggrandizing. Well, that becomes actually what started off, what you hoped would be a positive um, behavior may ultimately turn out to be a negative behavior as they may take on behaviors that glorify themselves at the detriment to of others yeah and just <clears throat> and this is really speculative but to what extent you you manifest one of those five factors uh like neuroticism or agreeableness or extroversion and to what extent those are rooted into physical circuitry in your brain do you come to serve that temperamental uh trait as a servant to master, the more you hardwire yourself to, uh, to meet the world with that trait, because that becomes more known territory, more sort of hardwired into habit to produce those sorts of situations which evoke that sort of response. I mean, it seems like that becomes your reality, your habits. Yeah, I think it does. And, and, and you know, we've discussed this somewhat on the, uh, the consilience conversation, but, um, you, you know, no one those those traits are your personality or at least they um sort of are the, the roots of your personality and no one really wants to have their personalities changed as such you know uh, we we want to be ourselves uh to a degree um but people do change over time uh it's just a matter of degree and um you know and tying it also even back to like our free wills just conversation with uh mr babcock uh, a few weeks ago um let, let, you know, I, I just like to keep an open mind that people are always able to change. And even though they, they might have these sort of traits in the here and now, uh, or some combination of these traits in the here and now, uh, the evidence is these, these things change over time. So Sure, but it also, also shows the absolute necessity of communication at any given time, because at any given time, you are 
the set of those traits plus, you know, put, potentially some liquid intelligence and some free will or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you're never seeing everything, not even close. Um, and so it shows why your perspective is valuable as sort of part of something larger. If say we're sort of the individual neurons within the brain, which is our human society. Uh, but they t- you need nice access analogy. to all those other people <laughs> around you because you do not see much at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's right. part of what we've talked about uh, also in, 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 in those conversations and that other uh, sort of series of podcasts is uh, trying to educate individuals about how little they actually may truly be aware of their, why they make the decisions that they do, why they think the things that they do, and sort of always questioning what they believe, that, not what they believe, but what they, their conscious self uh, had them do versus what their sort of like subconscious self had them do and their conscious self just sort of retroactively explained why they did what they did. Right. Because they don't understand how a computer works and that's far less complicated than them. <laughs> True. Uh, Wes, what were you, I, I think I heard you saying something. Oh no, I was just agreeing. Like, I, I guess I think that there's uh, again, a real interesting question here about like what kinds of games tend to be addictive. Because as you're saying, um, they, they seem to be addictive to certain kinds of people more so than others, um, and certain you know certain traits that people have would make them uh, more inclined to to get addicted or to display addictive behavior or whatever you want to say. But, well, um, but what, yeah, but what kind of um, what kind of games and and specifically like from the standpoint of uh, these these RPG and fantasy type games, what makes them sort of distinct? as a, a, a especially problematic or like a special area of interest with respect to this topic, um, I think would oh. be a question I'd Yeah, okay. I, I wish I, you know, I, I wish I had an answer for that. I think it's a great question. I think it's, you know, we, we touched on it briefly there about how uh, game designers sometimes think about and, st- and use research on uh, sort of the pace or how people are rewarded. And it may be that a lot of these, uh, role-playing games where you're really immersed are the rewards, uh, maybe not necessarily point rewards, but you're sort of constantly engaged in different tasks. And maybe there's just uh, uh, not necessarily by evil design by by corporations, but just by the way these games are uh, are set up, there's uh, a a great reward schedule, if you will, there. Just like some, like the Candy Crush game that was mentioned in one of those neuroscience papers. So that's something I wanted to ask you about as a framework for this question, Matt. Like, Mm -hmm. Two, two ways of thinking about how to stimulate yourself towards addiction then. One way is the Candy Crush sort of immediate reward, just pure neuroscience way with all the colors and the lights and the novelty that comes at uh, random intervals. But also I wanted to add to Wes's question the fact that an RPG is a game where you A, can explore, B, have free choice to some extent, and is C, narratively driven and for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And to what extent having a narrative applied to a game uh, fixes a reward schedule and also gives one uh, access to the incentive reward system because one literally sees one's character develop over time and the problems one can uh, uh, defeat or, or, or get through and what one takes from them get more and more complex. And to what extent that even without knowing it might be the most addictive possible um, uh, game because it, yeah. It, it, yeah. yeah, that, that seems reasonable uh, or a, a reasonable speculation or hypothesis that, um, you know, going back to Candy Crush as, the, as a not counter example, but a different example. But yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see a lot of people playing Candy Crush anymore. So, you know, these things have a lifespan when they're as simple as Candy Crush is. Um, but now these, these, as you already mentioned, these games have an overarching narrative or theme and people are sort of constantly exploring the space. So they, even if then they get these little rewards, they're ultimately working towards much larger uh, milestones in the games. And that may just keep it, keep it going. Um, it may be the perfect, perfect addictive gaming storm. Well, that might be the perfect model for a good, a, a most effective education too. And possibly even a life, honestly speaking, like one in which you are, you are moving towards a superordinate goal, which is this is like Piaget's equilibrated state, which is also going to work for all the other humans around you in a social 
context that get, you know gives you constant access to the feeling of meaning because mm-hmm. you're doing something socially approved of and also sort of neurologically approved of, right? Uh, because you are optimally using your systems for an optimal possible social benefit. And maybe that's what this sort of addiction capacity is missing, that uh, with these games, that that's what you're supposed to derive from these games. The structure of the game mimics in some way the, the way you should structure your real pursuits and that you need to abstract that, not become addicted to the game itself, not look at the finger pointing at the moon, but the moon, maybe even what the moon means. <laughs> maybe that's a... Uh... I don't want to interrupt if you had more to say on that, Alex, oh, yeah. but maybe that's, you know, I know Alex, I mean, I know Wes had posted, uh, had a sort of a blog page uh, speaking about some of the hypothesizing, speculating, I don't know what word you might want to use, Wes, about some of the positive uh, ramifications or outcomes of, of video gaming. And so maybe this would be, I, I don't know if you had more, some commentary on that, but maybe that'd be a good time to at least point out what you think some of the positive aspects are. Sure. Yeah, I think I think Alex also sort of summarized them briefly at the start here, but um, it's a post on uh, a journalism, a games journalism site called the Well Read Mage, uh, which is a little you know Final Fantasy pun there. Um, but he talks he talks about big issues um, and how they relate to games, and so that's that's a site that I've been um, fortunate to have some of my uh, writing about Earthbound uh, posted on. And uh, the guy who runs the site, um, the well-read mage, uh, is his like handle. Uh, he he basically wants to sort of like get more conversation around ways in which games are beneficial and you know help you learn things about being a person in the world and stuff like that, and um, sort of have that as a as a counterweight, as a a better thing to talk about maybe than like all the ways in which games are violent and crude and this and that, which was kind of like the dominant mainstream media narrative through the the 90s when we were growing up, you know. Um, But anyway, I do think that games are essential to education, whether you think of them in kind of concrete ways or in that bigger framework that Alex is kind of sketching there, which with respect to Piaget and all that, um, which I think is very compelling. And uh, I guess I would, I wanted to ask you, Alex, because you always bring up dopamine and how interesting it is. Is it because it's sort of connected to this sense of meaning that you're so interested in that and like how how meaning is constructed neurologically or, or neurochemically? Well, so it seems to be the agonist that helps to form your neural systems to become habits. Um, and it seems to be released, or at least from what I've gathered through what I've read and talked about with Matt, um, uh, during crucial moments in the, during the microprocesses of every behavioral process that you engage in and potentially even some of your mental processes insofar, insofar as those are related to habits of thought, which are also in some way uh, uh, wired in, in your brain. And so dopamine just is always coming up in everything we're reading, by the way, like everything about habit formation, everything about incentive reward. And uh, it's tied to something that I felt for a long time which is this, and you guys can tell me what you think about that, that there are sort of two ways of living, and Dante seems to hit on this too with his sort of two types of, he has three types of sin, but really two, Uh, and there are those that seem to be about uh, satisfaction or consumatory reward, things like sex and eating, where when you just sort of, uh, uh, when you engage in the stimulus, then the sort of, or you receive the stimulus and the motivation disappears. But there are also sort of incentive reward. Uh, you also have incentive reward systems where when you make progress towards something, a higher order goal, you, uh, you receive actually sort of a bigger hit or as I can see here on the screen, like something as big as like a, eating a, pepperoni, a piece of pepperoni pizza or a dish of ice cream, which is, you know, wonderful. But that the thing is you can continue forward because once you've, you've gotten that hit, there's nothing except for like sort of your energy and interest levels keeping you from continuing to move forward. And I think about that in relation to Piaget's equilibrated state, because what that makes me think is that the greatest possible life is the life of continual incentive, of continually seeking that which produces incentive reward alongside other humans in a pro-social context. And that what that is, 
and how that manifests in mythology is as the hero's journey. And so we have then a physical basis and a behavioral basis to the ultimate sort of fantasy that manifests in literature, song, and video games. <laughs> Far out. And, and as, a, as a way of sort of understanding that scientifically, not simply metaphorically, if those terms are um, used kind of loosely here, like what then, what then does that do to us when we become sort of self-conscious and aware of that as this kind of superordinate goal? Um, I think we have to pursue the ultimate aim and talk about what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it seems like a, a, a massive project, but it, it strikes me that science, and maybe you can correct me or like, you know, lay, lay, layer something under this uh, blanket statement here, but it seems like most scientists uh, seem not to have a kind of overarching uh, goal. You know, they're, they're sort of like engaged in relatively, you know, small pockets of interest and with sort of limited aims and things that are quantifiable, right? And so to talk about it in this kind of philosophical way uh, strikes me as, as difficult to get to jive with, with the scientific um, like ethos, so to speak, or like what, what actually what they do uh, day to day. Um, I, I don't know, like, but it's, it's cool that, I, I mean, I really admire the, the whole consilience concept and, and to try to kind of bring the more humanistic and the more scientific threads together in a, in a bigger project. Um, yeah, that's a lot. I don't know, what, what do you guys make of that? Oh, well, I, I guess I could probably add something to this. Um, the, uh, so to your latter point there, Wes, or to, the, to your main point about uh, sort of um, connections or disconnections between scientists and the scientific community and uh, philosophers or the humanities, um, that is part of what that, this, our conciliates conversations are about. Um, I, I think, you know, there are a lot, you know, I'll speak specifically about neuroscience um, and neuroscientists, of which there are many, and there are just so many different fields of study, and they are neuroscientists that you know, this is the way science um, by some degree has to be. And I, I know it doesn't, we don't, we would like to be more broad and uh, for individuals to have uh, a broader view of things. But the world is so complex, the world of science is so complex that people have to specialize and they have to dig deep. Um, on the other hand, there are plenty of scientists that I've spoken to, neuroscientists that are uh, high level, you know, uh, very accomplished individuals in the field. And a lot of them are very knowledgeable, especially at the sort of cognitive or systems neuroscience about philosophy, um, sort of the, the grander goal. But, you know, they have to publish, they have to do physical research and publish papers. And so they're not gonna, you know, that's their job, that's what they're paid to do. And so they can't, you know, always make these, these ties apparent in their, their publications that just go into academic journals. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to, to comment on so, you know, I don't know if I really answered some questions there other than uh, from your, your, your statements, Wes, other than um, it's true. The scientists have to focus on sort of their physical experiments and, and that's the key. Um, but getting back a little bit to sort of uh, taking two steps back to this, to this connection to dopamine, I, I think one of the things there is um, there's a blessing and a curse that we've come to discover some elements about the brain. And and this, this reward system that dopamine is tied to. And dopamine has many other modulatory roles as well. So let's, uh, to think of it solely as something that is um, representing reward or motivating us to take actions in order to receive that reward is not quite correct. That's, that's sort of the problem is that we, we understand some basic elements and, the, and, and we also understand some sort of nuanced elements too. What comes out in the media and what, you know, people can easily understand is dopamine is reward. And then when you have these sort of papers that show that uh, people that have played video games for a long time and are sort of maybe not technically addicted according to the clinical uh, um, diagnoses, but certainly it's sort of a disorder that they see, you know, aspects of their brain activity and brain anatomy that are related to uh, those that might be addicted to certain drugs. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting, and people sort of sometimes latch on to that, and that's why there's sort of sometimes some of the argument towards, oh, we got to call this an addiction. But as sort of like this bullet point here says, 
well, video gaming can raise dopamine levels just as much as going and having a piece of pizza or having a dish of ice cream. Um, one other line I read in one of the papers was, um, um, you know, so I'll, I'll pause and say that. Um, so what does that mean? Because dopamine is, is, it's all over the place. It's always um, rewarding us for a variety of things and having other roles in the brain. So to jump to the conclusion that, you know, this is an addictive, uh, that this is, this is addictive in a negative way is really, that's oversimplistic and probably false uh, in, in many ways. Uh, and the final thing I wanted to say is, that I think this goes about five steps back in our conversation, is that, um, you know, you might have certain personalities, this, we said this early on, that might drive someone to um, close them off from society, right? They already have sort of under, so the, the addiction isn't really the problem, it's a manifestation or a symptom of the problem. And one of the quotes I read, someone said was that um, if someone's depressed, they may be, they may lay in bed all day, but they're not addicted to the, to the bed, right? <laughs> so it may be that uh, sort of something like video game addiction more so is a problem with, other, you know, it's really just a symptom of a greater problem. Um, so anyway, that was a whole host of just kind of a few bullet points that addressed our last 15 minutes of conversation, but I wanted to get those out there. Well, that's so interesting too, because it makes me think a about the relationship of neuroticism to dominance hierarchy position and to what extent boys are especially liable to be subject to that uh, in adolescence, because of course they're now sort of, you know, adults, but females don't have much time for them because they're so low hierarchy position at that point. And there's so many, uh, you know, so so many guys who are higher on the hierarchy. So it, it makes sense that men would be more neurotic when they're younger and weaker and less skilled. And to what extent that would make them more liable to seek a, a space that was safer um, and to orient themselves to uh, like a video game. Um, and to what extent also, you know, uh, boys are more likely to become addicted to video games because they are less agreeable by temperament, uh, writ large, and games are, tend to be con competitive endeavors. They can be cooperative as well, but they, there tends to be a goal where you win uh, or lose at the end. And so I wonder to what extent video games really would hit like sort of young, low dominance, uh, you know, males who are potentially higher in dis or lower in agreeableness. But maybe that also, you know, one thing you didn't mention there, but uh, is uh, connections between uh, younger males and uh, sort of attention deficit disorders. That's right. And some of these games are, there's just constantly things going on such that it's, it's actually, uh, perhaps counterintuitive that you don't need to have a, a focus of attention at all times. You know, if there's a, a, a you know, certain games might have a, a, a long arc to them and you really do have to pay attention for a long time. Um, but that may feed into this, re, you know, to this as well as to why they uh, might be, why this might affect boys most of than girls in addition to the uh, items that you speculated on there, Alex. All right. And um, I, I, I was also wondering to what extent, if it were boys who are more likely to get addicted to video games, to what extent that would be connected to the fact that there are more boys who are diagnosed with ADHD and to what extent that would be connected to the lack of rough and tumble play in high school and to what extent video games are some like a neurotic substitute for that and how that might relate A, to parenting practices. Uh, and I don't think we have time for this, but also B, to educational practices, to what extent, you know, uh, kids in general, but also, but also especially boys with their, you know, higher levels of aggression and lower agreeableness, uh, need to get out and move their bodies and play, even even from a neural standpoint. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe they. They. That's more necessary for them, as well as connecting it back to the type of video games. Maybe, you know, if if parents have the if they have the willpower to try and get their kids to play uh, games that are, it's not about first, you know, shooter games. I'm not trying to say anything negative about that particularly, but games that uh, require them to sort of have a longer, more drawn out thought process and are not a, not just a quick response process, uh, quick response process that is feeding on a, you know, high frequency reward uh, schedule. 
Right. Well, Wes, yeah. how, what should we end this with? Well, shoot, I don't know. I mean, just trying to get Matt to play Final Fantasy VII with us oh, so we yeah. can talk more often, I guess. How many hours am I going to need to dedicate uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to do uh, with you guys? What's, what's my trading regimen going to need to be? Oh, man, conservatively speaking, 40 hours, but... You know, you could probably just watch some walkthroughs if you wanted to at this point, if you wanted to catch up with us. And, <laughs> or, well, or I'll, I'll, you know, as you know, Alex, I'll be in your area uh, in, in another week or two. So maybe I'll just dedicate that at 40 hours to my, uh, my time in your region. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I can't think of anything better for you to do in San Diego. Right, right. No, I don't um, need to see the beauty of the, of the world out there. And I guess that's for the listeners, too. And did you say it's a week now, Matt? Uh, I'll be out there in about a week and a half. About a week and a half. We're going to have a, we're going to try and get uh, an episode out there on video with Matt here in the, the home office and so the studio. And so it is pretty nice here, Matt. So I'm looking forward to this and I hope it, I hope that gets to happen and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation and well, yeah, if Wes is good with it I, and you, you want to, I, I'd love to have you on here again sometime and we can talk about this issue more or one of the other mini issues that we need to get to. This is so much yeah, to do. I mean, so little time. Whole, we'll do what we can. There's a whole slew of psychological issues that are brought up in Final Fantasy VII. So yeah, no shortage of topics. Yeah, it'll be great. Cool. Yeah, and uh, you know that maybe even just broadly, I want to understand how we can become connected to inanimate objects, like holy objects, and, or like our our you know our pet seal stuffed seal growing up. And then eventually our, our video game systems to where we're actually, I read this today, we'll be motivated to do violence to defend them. We'll, we'll activate defensive aggression against our own family members. Mm. And wow, mm. you know, that's, a, <laughs> that's very strong. Um, so I just want, I want to understand a lot more about that because it seems like objects, that does not make the world less holy. It makes objects actually far more holy and makes me understand the roots of private property uh, in a much deeper way than I ever had before. Far out. Sounds Far like out. interesting stuff. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, um, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you as usual, Wes, and thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bruce, Matt, for coming on and uh, doing something a little bit different today. And um, I, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you.